Hi everybody, JP here. Just wanted to tell everybody how excited I am that the AANS has relocated this year's meeting to my beloved home state of Florida in sunny Orlando. It'll take place August 21st to 25th. Be on the lookout as housing opens next month in March and registration will open in May. Once again, we hope to see everybody at the AANS meeting this year, August 21st to 25th in Orlando, Florida. Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Today, we are delighted to be joined by Phil Starr. Phil Starr is a a world-renowned expert in functional neurosurgery. He has a very busy practice doing uh, very high-level and innovative uh, brain surgeries at the UC San Francisco campus. Uh, We've known, I think, JP, both you and I know people who have done or are going to do a fellowship with Phil because he really is uh, hosting one of the premier training grounds uh, for American neurosurgery today. Welcome to the podcast, Phil. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Phil, give us a little bit of background on, on functional neurosurgery, because some of our listeners, maybe they're, they're in medical school or maybe they don't really understand what we do. Tell us what it is that you actually do, because I'm a spine surgeon. That's pretty obvious. I fix problems with the spine and spinal cord. What does mm-hmm. functional neurosurgery really, really mean to you? Yeah, it's a bit of a strange name, not obvious what it is at first. Um, you know, Most of neurosurgery is designed to um, change change or repair structural problems in the nervous system. You have a brain tumor that's pushing things. You have an aneurysm that bursts. You have to click uh, uh, clip it. Um, functional neurosurgery are, are the set of procedures specifically designed to alter function and not really structure of the brain. And traditionally, that's included um, the the disciplines of of neurosurgery for epilepsy, for movement disorders and for pain, and now increasingly in investigational protocols in psychiatric conditions. So Dr. Starr, to help contextualize this conversation and familiarize some of our listeners at various stages in the field, perhaps you could describe your practice in general, and then after covering some of the bread and butter cases that you do, uh, you could talk about some of the more exotic and cutting edge things that you're looking into with your group. Absolutely. Um, so uh, I, I have an unusual practice for neurosurgery. I've become over the years very specialized. Um, I'm, I'm relatively narrow in focus, uh, but very, very deep. I like to refer to my practice as low volume, high quality. From the standpoint mm-hmm. of deep brain stimulation, it's actually one of the highest volume centers in the world, but it, it's, it's not high volume compared to, say, a typical spine, spine clinic like you have, Michael. Um, we, the foundation of our clinical work is a big multidisciplinary clinic we have once a week with uh, a number of movement disorders neurologists um, who are focused on deep brain stimulation um, with a neuropsychiatrist and actually a psychiatrist and then my colleagues, Dr. Larson and Dr. Wong. And there we get a lot of referrals of patients with movement disorders for DBS. And that includes the majority are adults with Parkinson's disease 
but we also see um, adults and children with dystonia um, and various other tremor disorders and a number of, of rare conditions. So, Phil, we talked a little bit before we started recording about some exciting things you're doing. So I'll, I'll kind of hit some of the high points. You had mentioned that you do functional nurse surgery on, on young people, children even. And I'm very curious to hear about that because, you know, we always think about functional nurse surgery being in old people with Parkinson's. Tell us about what that's like operating on these younger folks and, and maybe what the implications are. Sure. Well, the pediatric deep brain stimulation is one of the best parts of my practice. Um, it's, there is a, there's a subpopulation of kids who need deep brain stimulation who have the so-called isolated dystonias where the brain structure is normal, their brain MRI is normal, and they have just a network disturbance often on the basis of a gene mutation. Those kids are typically normal for their first few years of life and will get uh, dystonia, an abnormal co-contraction of, of, um, of, of muscles in the body. And they will often get that in uh, around eight to 12 years old. So if you can you know, really um, fix the movement problem in those kids, they can have normal lives and you can convert a kid from you know, being in a wheelchair, being non-functional uh, to someone who really can live a normal life. So those are incredibly gratifying cases and to me the best use of of medical technology that I've ever seen. Um, the classic are the so-called DYT1 positive uh, dystonia kids. That's one of the more common genetic causes and, and they do incredibly well. So we do um, globus pallidus deep brain stimulation. We actually developed a technique for pediatric DBS um, using interventional MRI and now we use it for a number of our adults. So um, the traditional way of doing um, movement disorder surgery is to have patients awake and do physiologic confirmation of target while they're awake. That method is obviously not that great for kids. And so we developed another method where we could have real-time high-resolution confirmation of, of landing in the right target. And that's doing these surgeries inside the bore of a high-field magnet, 1.5 or 3 Tesla. And it's not in an operating room. It's a diagnostic magnet in a radiology suite. So we modified the DBS procedure to be able to fit into a standard diagnostic magnet as opposed to utilizing a specialized MRI that you know, is made for the operating room, which usually doesn't have the, the very high quality imaging that, that we needed. So the interventional MRI work that, that we developed along with Paul Larson and Alistair Martin at UCSF was really started from, from, from the pediatric uh, world. Then we have, with regard to pediatrics, we have a lot of referrals of kids with, um, who have some form of structural damage to the brain, um, often from perinatal hypoxia or in utero problems. And those kids are much harder to treat. They will have abnormal movement you know, from beginning of life. They won't meet motor milestones. And then we're seeing them as kids, often with very hyperkinetic syndromes, uh, a lot of spasticity. It's a mixed disorder of dystonia and spasticity. And we are still figuring out the best thing to do for those kids. They do not do as well as those primary DYT1 dystonia patients uh, who were normal in life until age 8 or 12. So these kids with abnormal MRIs, we've tried different brain targets, this traditional globus pallidus target. We've done a study of thalamic stim. We're now actually starting a trial of cerebellar deep brain stimulation, which is a somewhat promising um, target for these mixed movement disorders. 
So, you know, it's interesting because as a spine surgeon, I know that when we implant electrodes uh, into the spine, for example, there are issues with uh, scar tissue, impedance, uh, maybe maybe differences in how the nervous system responds to that. And I imagine if you're putting in devices that are intended to last multiple decades, um, there might be issues or there might be differences in how the brain itself adapts in a younger brain, right, to what you do to them. Can you elaborate yep. at all on that? Sure. Well, one, you know, regarding the scarring issue, for spinal cord stem devices, that's generally epidural. And I think that epidural electrodes are much more prone to scar tissue formation. Most of our electrodes are, you know, intraparenchymal. And remarkably, you know, in cases where there's autopsies been done even 10, 15, 20 years later, there is a very thin rim of gliosis. Um, the electrode impedance typically changes just in the first month after implantation and then will remain stable for many, many years. So we do not see a big problem with tissue changes in the brain long term with these kids. Um, parents often ask about growth. You know, implant a kid who's eight years old or 10 years old and what happens as they grow. And in fact, you know, your, your, your head size and the distance between your brain and your, your you know, chest where the DBS pulse genera goes doesn't change that much after eight, 10 years old. So there's usually not problems with growth except in the, in the, in the smallest kids, kids that I do. You know, Dr. Starr, you read my mind. I've been sitting here myself wondering about if you implant these devices in a very young child, if there's any concern for its eventual position changing as the patient grows. And there you've answered the question. So uh, perhaps not thinking about the physical aspect of the implant and its uh, anatomical position as your patients grow, maybe we could look forward in the patient's life and think about not only the implants and the stimulations effect on the symptoms you're trying to treat, but are there any alternate effects or side effects that you notice long-term in patients who have uh, stimulating implants or other functional implants from a very young age? Well, it's an interesting question because when we started uh, um, over 20 years ago doing DBS in children for the primary dystonias, our hope was that there would be long-term network changes in the brain such that once they grew up, having had now normal motor function or near normal, they wouldn't need the stimulator anymore. We hoped that they would sort of rewire the brain in a way that, you know, they become stim independent. And one of the fascinating things is that actually you could have a kid, say, have a DBS for 10 years, have nearly normal motor function because of it, and if it malfunctions or they turn it off, within a few hours or a couple of days, their dystonia will come back, even though it hasn't been present for a, for a while. So that, that actually illustrates the relative lack of plastic changes in the brain from the standard DBS parameters that we are now doing, which is you know a sort of a monotonous constant frequency stem. I do suspect that we, there may be ways to induce longer term changes with some of the new stimulation protocols, intermittent stem, so-called adaptive DBS. So that's a, that's a big frontier out there. But at this point, there's very little evidence of long-term plasticity changes in the brain. We'd like to be able to have those in order to harness them for therapeutic good, right? Like to become stimulator independent. But of course, you have to worry about um, side effects that you might get from long-term changes. And the only example I know about, and it's quite rare, of a long-term brain change from deep brain stimulation um, that persists after turning off the device 
is in anterior cingulate DBS for pain. And we're working on a protocol uh, doing that. And Tipo Aziz in Britain has published on that. And you can, if you're not careful, induce epilepsy with anterior cingulate stems such that, you know, after you turn off the device, they still can have a, a seizure disorder. But that's the only example that I know of. So, Phil, let's go to the other end of the age spectrum and talk about the debilitated elderly uh Patients, for example, Parkinson's patients, I'm sure you that's the mainstay, right, mm-hmm. of what you hear about. Tell us about what you're doing there that's new because we're so used to thinking about Parkinson's as a sort of on-off motor phenomenon, but it's becoming quite clear that there's a lot more to Parkinson's disease than uh, you know, tremor or, or, or akinesis, right? There is a lot more there. Tell us about what you're doing in that arena. Sure. Well, you're exactly right. And I have to say most spine surgeons don't know that about Parkinson's disease. Uh, most people don't. But um, Parkinson's has now been sort of re, reconsidered as a neuropsychiatric disease with, in fact, a prodromal syndrome that can involve uh, an organic depression or anxiety disorder and a sleep disorder that can actually predate the onset of motor symptoms by years. Um, so there is a lot more to Parkinson's than, than the, the abnormal movements. Um, we are starting to try to address this in a couple of ways. Um, so we have a, a protocol in which we've enrolled five patients where we implant, in addition to standard DBS electrodes, we implant a prefrontal cortex permanent paddle type lead where we're trying to map signals in prefrontal cortex that are at least correlated with, might be causative of the organic symptoms of anxiety and depression, and then develop new stimulation paradigms to to, um, alleviate that along with their motor symptoms. And also, we're very interested in sleep and the sleep disorder of Parkinson's, just like Alzheimer's or other neurodegenerative disease, is a very big part of the syndrome and may even be related to the abnormal protein clearance that that causes progression of, of, of these disorders. So I think we're approaching that with some of the new sensing-enabled stimulators where we can uh, turn the device on and off adaptively, and we may be able to use that in, tradi- in the traditional brain targets uh, during sleep to use different stimulation parameters during sleep and, and improve that, that serious non-motor problem. I will say, you know, you mentioned that this is an, an old sort of the other end of the spectrum for age. I actually really enjoy treating uh, some of the older patients with Parkinson's because, you know, these, unlike a number of other neurologic disorders, these are people who you know, live normal lives for a long time and then developed a debilitating disorder, typically, you know, in late middle age or even older. And they're coming to us in a, in a hopeful way to get improved quality of life. So many of the things neurosurgeons treat you know, the patient comes to them and it can be the worst day of their life that they have to see a neurosurgeon. You have a ruptured aneurysm, head trauma, new brain tumor. Um, but in, in these cases, it's really a, a good day for the patient to come to see us because they, they can hope for improved quality of life. And I have to say spine surgery is the other subspecialty that kind of shares that you know, quality of life surgery. Oh, thanks for the shout out. We're not as smart as you guys, but we always think about the Parkinson's patient's posture, right? So it's totally You, you bet. You, you bet. And can I say that I, I do work closely with some of our spine folks, Aaron Clark, Praveen Mumanani, um, on pay. There's a lot of patients who need both spine surgery and 
deep brain stimulator comes up with cervical dystonia all the time where they have, you know, accelerated cervical spondylosis from their abnormal neck movements. And the question is, you know, sort of who goes first, myself or one of the spine people? The answer is typically that I go first because their spine construct will not hold very well in the setting of abnormal movement. Well, Dr. Starr, that's very fascinating to me that uh, you, you describe these organic mood disturbances preceding the classical motor symptoms and, and the classical syndrome of Parkinson's that we all learned in medical school. Um, I think it's, uh, whether it's a mnemonic device or just a, a very low-level understanding of the disease, at least a, a lot of my friends in medical school would think about Parkinson's and the associated psychiatric changes as well, of course, you become depressed because you, you can't move as well and, and you watch yourself losing control of your body. But it's very interesting to hear you describe that it's, in fact, just the reverse. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wonder if with these prefrontal paddle implants, um, you're taking readings with those paddles as well? We, we are. We're doing, we're doing these implants not only with an extra electrode, but with special investigational pulse generators that not only deliver a DBS therapy, but also sense and store, you know, field potentials, in this case, electrocorticography. Um, And so we use that first to try to map out areas that may have signals that correlate with depression or anxiety. So for example, we have patients um, go for months after, after implantation and during the daytime, they will do self ratings of anxiety and depression and pair those with brief neural recordings where they can actually trigger their own device just at home in their daily life to trigger a brain recording. And then we can look at, you know, uh, 50, 100 of these, of these snippets of recording and ask the question, you know, what part of the neural signal correlates with or predicts those non-motor symptom ratings. So we do that kind of mapping first and we have a paper um, you know, in, in, in the works on that. And then on that basis, we're trying to then develop stimulation paradigms that will, will address those problems. And, and so that was my question exactly. Are, are you finding, at least with your preliminary data, that the traditional targets for Parkinson's that you're stimulating are affecting those other areas of signal with the organic causes of psychiatric symptoms? Or do you think ultimately you're gradually triangulating your way to find a different target or a different nidus in the brain that may be the true root cause of this overall syndrome? That is a great question. And we're, you know, don't understand enough the networks involved in in depression yet. But I will say that in one of our most common targets for Parkinson's and other disorders is the subthalamic nucleus. And there, there is a very tight packing of circuits related to movement, but also related to um, limbic, the limbic function and cognitive function. So, you know, if we stimulate, for example, in the lowest contact of a typical subthalamic lead, we are affecting non-motor circuits and, and limbic and associative circuits. So there has been a hope that with a single target, say the subthalamic target, we might be able to use the more dorsal contacts for motor symptoms and the more ventral ones for, for non-motor ones. That being said, um, we haven't been able really to induce a lot of positive affect uh, from ventral subthalamic stim. We are able to induce negative affect, however. You know, Phil, there was a lot of enthusiasm, I guess, starting about 15 years ago about the vagus nerve, uh, cranial nerve number 10, being like the antenna to the brain, right? And then, of course, you probably remember early in your career, people were talking about vagal nerve stimulation for a whole host of 
mood and affective and okay. other disorders like bipolar and, and obesity and whatnot, right? What happened yes. with all that? Do you think that was that was just overly enthusiastic? Do you think we were doing it wrong? Or was you think there's really hope there? Because everybody sort of turned away from that, right? Yeah. You know, the the use of vagal nerve stem for all these conditions is kind of represents that classic pattern with new technology where there's this initial hype and inflated expectations and then kind of a crash. And then eventually there may be enough serious research to find an actual niche for that technique. You know, vagal nerve stem was, uh, was a bizarre story, was approved very quickly for use in depression by the FDA. I believe they then retracted that approval based on very, very thin studies. So there may be efficacy in it. And now some serious groups are really looking at you know, how vagal nerve stem affects networks. But, you know, I think in general, in, in neuromodulation, we need to move away from the old paradigm, which is like stick something in or try something empirically, say, wow, it works, let's do it. Um, we need to do much better at understanding the circuit mechanisms of the disease so that we can understand what we're doing. And I think one of the reasons why vagal nerve stem never caught on for these other disorders is we really have never understood you know, how does vagal nerve stem affect the networks underlying depression, for example. We just don't know. We need to find that out if we're going to design a better paradigm. We, you know, Who knows if the stim, stimulation sequence used in vagal nerve stem is really optimal unless you can measure the circuits and look at the effect. And, you know, Dr. Wang, I'll actually remind you, a few years back, we wrote a Science Times editorial about VNS for Crohn's disease, of all things. Um, <laughs> Well, an oldie but a goodie. Um, but but Dr. Starr, it's it's like you're reading my mind because exactly where I wanted to take this conversation before we wrapped up uh, was an off-quoted paradigm among medical students who were first getting to know functional neurosurgery and um, more junior people in the field such as myself. It's almost a joke. And so I want to set up a, a straw man for you, th this joke that we make amongst ourselves so that you can correct us and give us a more refined viewpoint. The straw man okay. being within functional neurosurgery, all we need is a target and I can stick a lead in there and we can stimulate. So clearly everything we're talking about today belies much richer complexity to these circuits underlying it and a more nuanced multifactorial understanding of which point in the circuit that you're going to stimulate or lesion as, as it may be. So maybe you could just give us your perspective on a deeper consideration of not just putting a lead somewhere and turning on the stimulator, but thinking deeply about these circuits and, and how you're going to turn them on and off. Sure. Well, that image of um, neuromodulation, that sort of stereotype, um, has some truth to it, um, especially historically. And in fact, uh, one of my colleagues who's very well known, Andres Lozano, is fond of saying in his talks that there's nowhere in the brain now safe from a functional neurosurgeon. Um, <laughs> You know, that being said, what's happened in neuromodulation is we sort of happened to stumble on a very successful procedure, basal ganglia stim in Parkinson's or thalamic stim in tremor, um, without really knowing much about the networks or how it worked. And that was really, uh, you know, put in the electrode, turn it on. There were theories behind doing that. It turned out the theory... Uh, that led to the introduction of, of, of basal ganglia stem and Parkinson's is incorrect. That is a local inactivation of cells was the theory and that is incorrect. So now we're doing something quite effective without knowing how it works. 
But as people in the last 20 years have tried to take the Parkinson's paradigm and said, okay, you know, we have other disorders, let's stick an electrode in and see what happens. It hasn't been nearly as successful. And the, you know, the big company sponsored trials for DBS and depression failed. Um, and now the field is taking a step uh, a better consideration of physiology and, and, and understanding that, you know, we're not going to have a huge success like Parkinson's without a better understanding of, of the networks. And that's why I'm so excited about these sensing pulse generators where we can now understand what we're doing. Well, Dr. Starr, um, this has been a fascinating conversation. We do want to respect your time uh, I would like to say that, that last year in my intern year at Rush, I had two chiefs, one going into functional, one going into spine. And I always used to joke with them that they were, in, in fact, going into the same field because what does spine surgery do but alter anatomy to relieve pain and restore function? And, and that's functional neurosurgery in a nutshell. And that used to infuriate them. Um, <laughs> and, and now uh, one of those chiefs is your current fellow, Ryan Kachansky obviously working here at Rush with Dr. Seprasani. As I yep. joked with you before we got on the air, I feel like I, I know you by proxy just through my training. Um, but this has been a, a fascinating whirlwind tour through functional neurosurgery, both the bread and butter procedures and the more exotic and exciting frontiers that you're covering there at UCSF. Um, so for Dr. Wang and myself and everyone listening, we want to thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. 